0: One, two, three, four.
1: One go.
0: play you out like you a simple can see what I'm saying This folks is my pain not mercy I'm writing on my moleskin in the train took to Canarsie What? stand clear they're the closing doors the people aren't gone fear patrols the horse. vehicle that's supposed to free us to just a whore listen I gotta call like I see him even if it means the angels will thank me in the streets if I see him Saying there he go, but well, I wouldn't want to be him Holding up the 3M, rapping for Super Duty, what? Winnipeg, can we begin? Yeah, listen, Alan, talk to me Talk to me
2: you do that no one else I'd rather call but you. But we said we wouldn't get this far. Yeah. But we said we wouldn't get this far. One more time. So I got her wish, and she said, good you stay with me tonight. her wish. What's
0: One more time. One more time. she said, it would
2: be good if you stay with me tonight. So I granted her wish. Listen, right here.
0: I was high like the vocal tone on my brother, Booty Brown, decided to take a ride. I see what's really going down up on the north side of town. Of Course, I brought the porter pound of bomb hemp. I'm feeling all right, like John Kemp on a Friday night. You know my shit is tight, blazing blunts and city lights north End, of river heights, slid to the goodwill. I slip it free in my all-black apparel with no ID. Soon as I step inside the blizze, I recognize the blizze. Open up with the ass who are amazing the grace. I waste no time to kick my rhyme. I say, how you feeling? She says, yo. Now I miss the Mac and the baby to see what's happening. Maybe I get it back to the cabin and started cracking. Throw back a shot of yag. I started jabbering, jibbing, fibbing it. Why trying to get her to my crib when we was chilling on the bed, bumping some eyes? thought I was about to spread the thighs, but she surprised me when she said, Yeah, you know she's gonna clown, cause I let her stick around, but be good what? You stay
2: what? 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 So what?
3: there, you are tuned into a special takeover of Bad Intonation. I'm Michael Ozzie, MFM Program Director, and we are spotlighting some of the artists coming to the 2018 TD Winnipeg International Jazz Festival on this episode and next week as well. Uh, If you missed last week the interviews with Jordana Talski, Jill Barber and Joe Past are now up on UMFM's SoundCloud page and the interviews from today will be up there later as well. We've got Kaylee Runciman from the band Boyhood who are opening alongside Joe Past for Kamikaze Girls Tuesday, June 19th at the Goodwill Social Club. We're going to be talking to Nate Worth of Ghost Note who are playing the free stage at Old Market Square Thursday, June 21st. And Allison Au of the Allison Au Quartet will be playing at Kitchen Sink at 6 and 9 p.m. on Thursday, June 21st for a dinner and a show and a cocktail hour show. Uh, She'll also be playing at the Jazz for Lunch free stage at Old Market Square on Thursday, June 21st. We just heard from Super Duty Tough Work, who are capping off the Thursday night of the free opening weekend tomorrow night, Thursday, June 14th, at 11 p.m. We heard Abracadabra, she said, a little medley that they did at the Dilla Day at the Goodwill Social Club. And uh, we're going to play one more track from a another artist who is not being interviewed on this show. Uh, we're going to hear from Emmy Roussel. Uh, her trio is playing the Free Stage on Saturday, June 23rd, uh, as well as opening for Michael K. Sammer at Knox United Church at 8 p.m. that night. So two opportunities to see Emmy Roussel, one of the uh, great pianists out of Quebec. Uh, she's won basically the Quebec version of the Juno for her album Intersections, and we're going to hear 23 uh, e étage from that record right now. And coming up right after this, my interview with Kaylee Runciman. Right. Well, Kaylee Runciman performs under the name Boyhood, playing alongside Joe Past and Kamikaze Girls on Tuesday, June 19th at the Goodwill as part of the TD Winnipeg International Jazz Festival. Kaylee joins me by phone right now. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Now, you have a, a whole summer of uh, festival stuff going on. Uh, I know that you're playing Sappy Fest, Sled Island, Jazz Fest and, and a whole lot more. Uh, are you excited about this? Nervous? What's kind of the uh, the feeling heading into the summer?
4: Yeah, really excited Um, So my record, Bad Mantras Comes out on June 22nd Mm -hmm. Um, And we're getting on the road On the 18th to drive out to you To Winnipeg Um, Yeah, so playing Winnipeg Jazz, Flat Island um, And then later on In the summer we're playing uh, This festival called Up Here In Sudbury We're playing um, What else are we playing? Sappy Fest in Sackville, so sort of all over the place
3: this summer. It's going to be good. So, with the record coming out on the 22nd, are you going to have it in hand when you come to Winnipeg, or? Yeah. Yeah. We are. That's good to know. Um, So, I had read an interview that you did with Noisy from, like, 2014. Oh, yeah. A long while ago. Yeah, a long while ago. in It it said, all shows are anxiety-inducing. And I'm curious if that's, like, something over time you've kind of... uh, move beyond or like does it still Um, kind of rattle you
4: yeah definitely something that I still struggle with I think I'm probably better at managing that um to a certain degree at this point just because I don't know you grow and change but um yeah so with Boyhood it's it is a solo project so I record everything by myself and then I have a band that plays with me live but the live lineup is sort of ever changing. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that tends to be a little bit stressful. Where the anxiety
3: comes in is...
4: Exactly. You never know what you're going to get, really. So, I mean, for this this, uh, first tour, this initial run of shows, uh, in June, we're going to be a three-piece. And then later in the summer, I'm pretty sure we're doing a four-piece. But like I said, it's like just always evolving, always changing. So, um, not really knowing how the setup is going to be um, can be stressful. And learning out, learning different ways to play the songs based on the amount of people and the gear we've got, et cetera. Right. Um, you know, can be stressful, but it's also kind of fun to always have a different situation.
3: As someone who does it on their own for the record, and then you know, kind of builds out a band for taking it on the road. What are you looking for in terms of bandmates or or people to play with?
4: Um, well, definitely <laughs> availability, um, availability and uh, enthusiasm. Um, people who are like excited to to bring ideas. You know, mm-hmm. um, well, that's pretty much it. You know, when fun, you s- fun, nice buds.
3: When that's you say bring ideas, for. like, are you like open to them? Kind of shifting your songs or exploring them. not in necessarily
4: way? shifting the songs but um sort of um taking the vague parts that I'm giving them and making them their own you know based on the instrument that they're playing mm-hmm. for sure yeah
3: so the other piece that I found interesting in that interview was that you said all you make up all your songs on the fly and, yeah. I mean this was you know four four plus years ago Mm-hmm. But, in terms of you know, songwriting, is it are you still kind of like uh, around centered around spontaneity or kind of uh, that like living in the creative moment?
4: Um, yeah, for sure. I think I've definitely changed a lot um, since that interview happened. i when I first started recording things, I would sort of um, it was just a recording, you know, there was no actual um premeditated writing happening i would sit down and i would press record and i would play something mm-hmm. um and there wasn't any like going back and fixing things it was all very like this is what i'm making and this is what you get you know right um at this point i am definitely a bit more focused on actual construction of songs and spending a bit more time quote unquote songwriting um but yeah. And I don't know if it's a growth thing or just, a, you know, ch- a change of approach. Um, but yeah, so I, I definitely at this point in my life, I'm spending a bit more time developing things and, and, um, I mean, when I, when I decide what I'm going to do with my day or with my couple of hours, you know, I, I often do just sit at my eight track and I, and I, uh, develop ideas by pressing record, uh-huh. but, um, I think there's a bit more of a process now. There's a bit more time involved.
3: Yeah, you mentioned change of approach and I'm I'm curious was that like a conscientious thing like you were like I want to do this differently or did it just kind of organically happen?
4: Uh, both. <clears throat> I think the change has been organic, but I'm also conscious of um uh I just want to be better, you know? So so trying something different um I feel like is that you know a good way to sort of navigate navigate that I don't know challenge myself a bit more and spend more time I think is usually a good way to to figure out where you're at and hash out ideas and revisit things and rewrite things and decide what you want which direction you're going in etc you know
3: with trying something different, do you ever kind of end up going down like a musical cul-de-sac and kind of realize, oh, I'm I need to turn around and find a new road? Um.
4: Well, that's perhaps what happened with the uh, with the these sitting down and recording and and the sort of scrappy way that I've I've tended to do things in the past. You know. Right. I need I need I need to be doing something different now at this point. I think as far as, like, inspiration and stimulation goes as well, changing things is necessary. Um, and I definitely spent a few years feeling pretty, like, creatively constipated, you know? Like, uh, Bad mantras, the record that I'm putting out next month is, like, it's taken me just ages and ages to get out there because I was stuck in that, I guess, cul-de-sac Um yeah, so I think change is definitely necessary, at, at least for me, as far as like remaining inspired and and moving
3: forward. Were you stuck with those songs, or like before those songs?
4: Uh, both. I mean, a lot of the songs we've been playing live for for years and years, um, probably like three years now.
1: Uh-huh.
4: Um, and it was just sort of like, how do I get these out? as far as recordings go. Um, yeah, so a lot of this record is like just expelling these ideas that I've had for a really long time, you know?
3: Is that cathartic to kind of, as you say, expel them?
4: Oh, yeah, for sure. I can't wait to have this son of a bitch out in the world, seriously. And, I'm, and I've am and i also, like at this point, it's been so long, I've got like, and I feel like, you know, getting closer to um, to putting this record out, I've unlocked this part of my brain that just feels so good where you know now I'm back recording things. I've got like another record ready to go at this point to follow up bad mantras, and I just like can't wait for it to be out there, so I can just keep moving,
3: so you're already sitting on an album's worth of new songs, yeah is that uh like is that a challenge to kind of have to now tour? this thing that you'd been stuck on for a while and then have to put those on the back burner
4: absolutely yeah i mean i'm excited about the new songs that i've got i'm like kind of already over bad mantras so i don't know i'm also I'm, i'm trying to practice patience so working on it sure but i think i think most people go through this you know everyone's always a little backlogged
3: true enough yeah uh so I want to ask about the song Love Bomb and, and rather Love Bomb and Love Bomb Continued because this is one yeah. of the few times I've seen where like one song leads into the next and and kind of picks up the same sort of musical idea. You dropped this as a single around Valentine's Day. There's a video. And uh, what was it about this song or like kind of Love Bomb A, not Love Bomb B, that felt like it was kind of the thing to represent this record before it came out?
4: Um. <clears throat> well... A lot of the record, well, the main theme of the record, I suppose, is um, just sort of like being stuck in a headspace, a negative headspace. Um, And these sort of repetitive, loopy mantras that, that, that I was stuck in, I suppose. So most of the songs are pretty like I said, repetitive and, and mantra-like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I feel like love bomb, the idea of a, a love bomb, like love bombing is something that, that cults do, I guess. It's like, a, you know, um, bombarding someone with a huge amount of love and, and sort of brainwashing them with it and then retracting it. Um, and I feel like I had dealt with that in a lot of uh relationship situations and that's what that song specifically centers around though the entire record does to a degree um and yeah i don't know my my friend and i just went to a motel and shot a video for it and and uh and asked my friend chris at girl versus bear to to premiere it i thought that valentine's day would be fitting and uh, and funny Mm um i mean it's sad but
3: So, yeah. And, and yeah. then have it, following that up with, like, an, a Love Bomb Continued, like deciding to, to have kind of two songs, I don't want to say twinned, but, like, narratively uh, successful successors to each other. what
4: Yeah, well, both of those songs are, are um, I mean, I was in that mind frame for, all of the songs are about generally the same thing, but those two specifically are about the same situation um and i don't know i just decided to place them one after the other on the record and i think i i think i named the continued one continued after the fact so that may have just been more of like a, a superficial thing than a than anything else but uh but yeah
3: as far as kind of like album uh track order anything so it's kind of like the halfway point of the record since there's eight songs and it's number four and it kind of like pulls things in and and gets quieter for a little bit. And I'm curious if that was like an intentional thing before kind of pushing back and and doing uh, like a little louder and a little broader with driving.
4: It was. Yeah. Um, Just as far as sequence goes, um, I was really struggling with that song just because it is, um, it's pretty slow moving and then rather epic at the end um so at first initially i was thinking of starting the record off with it and then i was like maybe this is going to be too challenging for people like maybe this is this is a bit too much to start it so then i i just decided that the end of side one would probably work best and then you flip the record over and it's a bit more of a positive vibe to start anyways yeah that was my that was my thinking
3: sure enough So, uh, before we go, I want to get you to pick a track off the record, whether it's one we've already talked about or one we haven't. Um, but if you have a reason why you're picking it or an anecdote about the song, I'd love to hear that.
4: Okay, cool. Um, you know what? Driving. I'm going to choose Driving. Just because uh, that is like definitely the most positive song on the record. And that's more of a, a testament to where I'm at now in my life. And it's just kind of like a fun pop song. It's a pretty classic pop pop tune um i should say that um gorilla vs bear is going to be doing a stream of the record um, at gorillaversusbear.com on june 18th so that's before the release on the 22nd you can listen to it there
3: so bad mantra as you said comes out june 22nd but will be available here in town tuesday june 19th when you perform at the goodwill alongside joe pass and kamikaze girls kaylee thanks very much for taking some time and uh safe travels in the interim
4: Thanks so much. See you soon.
3: All right, well, coming to the Jazz Winnipeg Festival, Thursday, June 21st, playing Old Market Square at 9.30 p.m., Ghost Note. And one of the members of Ghost Note is Nate Worth, also of Snarky Puppy, another fan favorite here. The band will be on their Swagism tour. Nate Worth joins me by phone. How are you doing, man?
5: I'm doing fantastic, man. It's a beautiful day here in Brooklyn.
3: So uh, Ghost Note, I mean, I'm always curious about guys who have, you know, multiple projects going. And what kind of, like, impetus is to, to, like, is it just kind of like a, like a not necessarily a branding exercise, but an opportunity to kind of, like, do one lane and then pick a different lane? Or, like, what kind of, like, precipitates, you know, your being in multiple projects?
5: Sure. Um, I think for, for me, uh, I think it's different for everyone, really, you know. But for me, it's, it's about uh, keeping my creativity uh, challenged and trying to um, express myself in many channels as well as with other uh, instrumentalists and musicians and artists. And there's something really special about building a relationship with uh, a band over years and years and years, as I have done with Snarky Puppy. And they're my brothers for life, and I will always play with them. Um, But there's also something about, you know, that new sort of relationship and it's it's that chemistry uh and the excitement of getting to know someone musically that really kind of made Sput and i want to start ghost note we wanted to branch out and we had been meeting a a lot of young musicians that were just eager and just had the fire and wanted to tour and had never toured before and so you know but and I decided to start a group, mainly to celebrate percussion and make a percussion record, you know, our first record, Fortified. It's like a drum record. And then very quickly the band changed when we realized we had this, you know, this this way and this this new thing that was real buzzy and everyone was getting excited about. And then to also showcase these young musicians that are coming up that are, you know, 10 to 15 years younger than us.
3: So, in terms of incorporating those those younger musicians, this like sort of next generation, like was this folks you saw or folks you heard about, or like how did you kind of like come to these folks?
5: There's, so the first one, really, you know, is you know Mono Neon, Dwayne Thomas Jr. So I met Dwayne at a NAM convention. It's NAM. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's like a music annual convention that takes place. Uh, there's one in January that takes place in uh, LA, and then there's one in the summertime that takes place in Nashville. Right. But I think, essentially, uh... you know, musicians flock to this uh, exhibition, which is really for, you know, uh, the drum makers and the instrument makers and the buyers, the people who sell it. But then mixed in between are all these artists that are floating around checking out the new products. And I just remember seeing Mono Neon at this bass event called Bass Bash. And he was just hanging out in the lobby area with his headphones on as he does, uh, playing his bass, not hooked up to anything, and just, you know, doing his thing. And I remember walking by and everyone was like, who is that guy? Like, what? And, you know, and there's like a, a show going on inside with like some bass legends. And I just, I, I just remember passing by him and you know, it's just like, Hey man, what's going on? And he was just super chill, uh, man a few words. You know, he expresses himself through his bass and his guitar. Mm-hmm. And it just kinda moved me. And I I just remember, you know, that that was just kind of in the back of my mind about like, who is this guy? He's super mysterious and you know, and then I checked out some of his videos and then I, I got to see that he uh, you know, was like and has an amazing ear and all the microtonal stuff that he does on his social media pages where, you know, he plays the melody of what a person's speech, you know, carries. And so it just was fascinating to me and and it blew my mind. And I was like, how long does it take him to do this? You know, like (laughs) he would pick like a viral video and then just, you know play the melody of a human's voice and it was freaking me out and then fast forward maybe a year I did a tour with the screaming headless torsos And the band leader's name is david fusinski. And so he is the microtonal uh, Guitar or music professor at berkeley college of music And so a kind of a full circle Moment happened when I realized that he was Dwayne's professor and mentor And so we immediately just started talking about Dwayne. And while we were out on that tour is when Dwayne got called to play with Prince. Mm. And so I just remember being so happy and then also, you know, seeing David and how excited he was for Dwayne. And then shortly after that tour, we were on tour with Ghost Note and our, our other bass player, A.J. Brown, he was doing this hardcore exercise routine. And ended up throw, injuring himself and, like, throwing his back out tempor- temporarily. Mm-hmm. And I could just see how much pain he was in. And I've had back problems over the years of traveling and stuff. And and I basically made him go home because I was worried about him hurting himself. And we were in New Orleans at the time, and our next show was in Nashville. And Dwayne lives in Memphis. And so Sput looked at me, and he was like, well, let's call Mono. And I was like, "Let's do it." And we called him, and he was available. and he uh, I remember the conversation. I, I said, "You know it's a it's a grind out here with us right now. You know we're we're building something special, so there's not too much money involved." And he interrupted me and said, "I don't care about that. I just want to play." Mm. And his enthusiasm and his musicality has raised the bar on stage and really, really pushed Butt and I. To new limits and so that's the first of the and you know we took him out for his first tour and it's hard for people to believe that you know and people would come see him and they'd be like wait you got mono neon out of his room and like kind of laugh about it and I'd be like well there, you know him spending all that time in his room is the reason he sounds the way he does and yes we do have him out on the road you know right
3: <laughs> so it sounds like like kind of serendipity and openness is kind of the like linchpin of this group in some way. Like it sounds I, I think, like you yeah, were think, open to kind of like the, the possibility of this guy, but he was also open to just doing it.
5: Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a lot of, with, with up and coming bands, it, it, you know, there's a lot of faith that has to happen from the members, right? You know, because in the beginning of any band that's independent and doesn't have major management, or a major label, you know, it's, it's guerrilla work out here. You know, we're, we're grinding, we're rolling around in the van and, you know, we're going out to lunch and telling our server about the bands, you know, it's like we're walking promotion. And so when you can't treat your band members financially and, and compensate them for what they're worth, uh, because of this area and this time we are with it, with the music industry, um, the thing that will keep incredible players around is uh friendship on the road and having a good time and also the music if the music is explosive if the music is changing every night and if there's this realness this reality of uh of just exposing yourself and and the band you know we're, we're a multicultural group and in the sign of, of these times uh, you know, in America, we've always been struggling for the past, you know, ever since the, the beginning, uh, with racism and uh, you know all different types of prejudices. And one of the things that I love to do with this group is, is you know, we're we could be uh, just me, the only white person, and then everyone else is 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 uh, black or, or Asian or you know sometimes. It could be a couple of white guys, and, you know, it's very multicultural, and people look, you know, we get looks when we go into places, because we look almost like the rug raft, <laughs> and, uh, you know, everyone's got their own style, and and for me, that's inspiring. You know, I, I grew up younger in life uh, looking at myself from the outside too much, and I felt, I feel like when I was younger, I didn't allow myself my creative self to really come out and everyone has their weird, you know, everyone is, has, has something that separates them from everyone else. And, and a lot of people are shy about that. And Sput and I try to create an atmosphere where we just want everyone just to be themselves and, you know, just be you and, and, and shine and shine bright. You know,
3: how did you find that ability to be yourself? Like like you said, you spent some time being kind of outside yourself. How did you kind of, come into it
5: as a performer you know walking on that stage every time you know you you, in the beginning especially you know I, I would go through mental processes and and sometimes I would not be ready and and you know it's I've always been my 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 biggest critic and you know through the years of of trying and playing and trying to, to express myself in, in what my, my mind saw as, you know, the perfect me. Um, I started realizing, you know, in my flaws and my mistakes, how good I was at, you know, at, so to speak, a uh, recovering or covering up a mistake. And it would almost blossom into this beautiful moment of, of creativity and, uh, it was real. And and I remember just feeling this spark on stage after a moment like that. And, and it was, it was such an interesting moment because on one side I was, you know, critiquing myself about the mistake I had just made. And then on the other side, I was praising myself of how well I did and, and took it to the next level. And I, I just liked that feeling. And I feel like as artists, you know, you have to fail. If, if you don't try and you don't put yourself out there, then you're never going to understand, you know, how to change or, or, or how to fix something that didn't work, you know? And, and so we, we take chances. And I'm very lucky that I basically became an adult uh, while on tour over, you know, a 10 year period with snarky puppy and Michael league. Like that was his thing. He just wanted everyone to be able to have, that vehicle to express themselves and you know to a certain extent you know you you can't always just let the you know the the leash loose and just go for it because we are performers and another one of my mentors Bernard Wright he would always say to us you have to play under your skill set you you can't venture into an area that you've never been you have to always play under your skill set. And when you do that, that's when you feel like you're in control the whole time. That's when you feel like you can sing every note that you're playing. And if you practice that, then new boundaries will be reached. But if you're always jumping over your limit, it's almost like a whirlwind. It's like a tornado. Afterwards, it's like, whew, what just happened? Because all of these, you know, pheromones and energy. And adrenaline kind of takes over and it it makes your vision very blurry, so to speak, creatively. But if you're able to play just underneath your skill set and keep your your body relaxed and keep your mind open, there's whole other areas of creativity you can reach. And it took me a long time to realize that.
3: So it sounds like the kind of building like a core competence and then building up from there.
5: Yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, it's, it's really just about, like I said, like failing and then realizing like that you're going to love yourself either way. Right. And, and it's only music (laughs) and not to take it so seriously. And if you do take it seriously, then get serious about something beautiful and something positive. Don't get serious about your mistakes, you know, because if you come up that way, you're always going to have a grudge, or on your shoulder, or you're going to have an ego problem. But if you allow yourself to just be you, then you can also praise other people around you, no matter what their age is. You know, someone there's this kid, his name's Brandon uh, Niederauer. He goes by Taz, and we featured him on our on our latest release, Swagism. And this kid is 14 years old now. But when he recorded with us, I believe he was just turning 13. And I've known him since he was like 10 or 11. And he can play the guitar like a grown man. And it, is, it, it's, it makes you believe in another life. And it makes you believe in, in something other than this realm that we live in. It, it's unbelievable to watch Taz perform. And think to yourself that he's just a kid, you know. And something like that inspires me. Where someone else that might n- not have treated themselves very well in exploring their creativity might have an ego problem with that, right? You know. But but for me and Sput, we celebrate that and we get excited and we want we want to bring them on stage. You know, like I, I love seeing younger generation musicians that are just killing it and they don't even know that they're how good they are (laughs) you can just see it in their eyes you know it's before their ego it has happened
3: right so the the record swagism i I noticed on the on the description you guys described as conscious funk and and i'm curious about kind of Is that conscious in terms of like social consciousness or is it conscious in in terms of like, you know, as as a group when you're making the music, you're conscious of kind of like each other and, and the creative process or like what, what are you guys getting at with that?
5: It's exactly both of those things. You know, when you see us live, you will see that we are all looking at each other. We're smiling, we're excited. We're talking to each other. You know, we're very conscious of what's happening. And in fact, we're also talking to the crowd, you know, we, 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 we like it when our fans holler at us or, you know, praise us or, you know, it's, it's, it's great to just cut that barrier down between the stage and the audience. Right. And then also, you know, more importantly, um, you know, as, as, you know, the people in, in the black America world say, you know, you have to stay woke and, Really, what that means is, you know, we now is the time. I mean, it's it's it, 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 we're basically at a point where it's this. It, it's no more silence. Like, you can't. I'm so sick of hearing racist comments. I'm so sick of hearing sexist comments. I'm so sick of hearing comments uh, that degrade uh, like your sexual orientation. I'm so sick of people uh, butting into other people's personal lives and viewpoints and the whole band is, and the way we attack that is with positivity instead of negativity. You know, like obviously if someone is, is being racist around, around us and and saying things that we don't like, I will be very firm and I'm not going to approach them with too much kindness, but, on the bandstand, you know, we can talk about very sensitive topics, uh, through our music, even if it's just a phrase, even if it's just a hook that we get the crowd to sing with us, even if it's just a way to present an instrumental song, you know, telling them where the inspiration came from. And I think music can really inspire and heal. And that's what we need right now. It's, with, uh, with number 45 in, in office over here, it's it's so embarrassing, and for all of us, you know, artists that were excited about, you know, the change that was happening in America, and just see it all kind of come, uh, not to, you know, it, it just kind of came to a halt, and everyone got scared, and, and everyone is almost, has like PTSD from him being elected, and it's it's also letting these these people that are racist and sexist and just bigots uh, feel comfortable in the public and, and feeling like they don't have to hide in their in their you know homes with their opinions. Uh, I wouldn't even call them opinions, you know, with with their hate. Mm-hmm. But it's it's conscious funk, you know. It's you know like. We, We like to think like we can funk down all the barriers, you know, with our music. And if someone's racist and they're looking at stage and they see a white guy, a black guy, uh, an Asian guy, and we're all funking together, making something beautiful, you know, are they racist in that moment? You know, can we somehow push down a barrier? I mean, and, and it's small, it's small time, you know, like we're not like ambassadors of peace or anything not yet, you know, but, but I think it's a good start just to talk about it and to not be silent. And when, when a topic arises that's difficult, you know, and you feel like you have to watch your words very, very carefully so that you don't, so you're not misinterpreted, you know, these type of conversations need to be had instead of, oh, that's a difficult conversation. I'm going to, kind of bow out and let these other people have this conversation and you see that a lot you know when when challenging topics come up people are very quick to just kind of walk away and 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 you know not want to have that around them and that's what we're trying to change we're trying to talk about these bad issues as you know as a team as a family
3: well, with what you're saying there, I think maybe the most appropriate song for us to go out on is "No More Silence."
5: Yeah, I mean that's an uh, incredible tune. Um, features Kamasi Washington and this amazing spoken word offset. I mean, uh, artist uh, Sneed the Offset, and uh, yeah, it's it's real. It's real talk. Uh, it's a it's a very special tune tune for us.
3: Well, again, you guys will be in town Thursday, June 21st at Old Market Square, 9.30 p.m. Ghost Note. Nate Worth, thanks very much for taking some time out of your day. Uh, enjoy the rest of the beautiful weather, and looking forward to seeing you here in Winnipeg.
5: Oh, absolutely. We will be funking it up, y'all.
6: Some silences are heavy, sagging under the weight of words left unsaid by J.M. Green. We want to be quiet. We will not silence our no justice, no peace. Blacks, Latino, Asian, White—all of us together. We stop trapping black behind clenched teeth. Stop acting like it disappeared and embraced an ugly truth. Unlock tons that stayed hidden between lying pages. Muffled fear written in books never to be read. Trapped in thickened throats, afraid of retaliation. Shouts in our soul worthy of protest. Healing comes from a mouth open wide, full of fire with truth and conviction. Standing against Confederate flags, eye to eye with KKK and neo-Nazis. Hands on the back of your neck alerts, and you begin to question what year this is. As peace comes crashing into a life just beginning, a voice not heard until silence. Our name was Heather Hare, And that's how black, black can be. How loud black can get. Black be so bold, down, like our defense is a warranty like him making america great again didn't peel back the hate a civil war pressing its foot against our progress flatlining our hope our black is always too black too afro-pump and box brave too presidential not black enough to stand against the racist anthem, the mud. too black to reclaim our
3: Coming to the Jazz Winnipeg Festival Thursday, June twenty first, playing two shows at the Kitchen Sink: a dinner show at six p.m. and a cocktail show at nine p.m. Allison Al, the leader of the Allison Al Quartet, she joins us by phone. How are you doing?
7: Good, thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Michael.
3: I am very excited to talk to you. Uh, for folks who listen to, to my show at the station, they know I've been playing your stuff since the get go, and and have been just enraptured by by your music. So I'm I'm very excited to see you live. Uh, Allison, I want to talk kind of like, we're, we're going to kind of back the train way up and talk about how you have kind of first got into jazz music and and, yeah. and decided to A, become a performer, but B, to become a composer.
7: Yeah, I guess um, like so many young people, um, it really kind of started at home for me. Um, my dad, uh, as, as my brother and sister and I were kids, was a very avid music listener. Um, he had an incredible vinyl collection at home. Um, and then, of course, when CDs became the rage, um, he would go CD shopping at Sam the Record Man almost every weekend, which is a, uh, it's now since, um, I think they went bankrupt and they, they tore down the store and built something else. Um, but right near Yonge Street in Dundas, which is a major intersection in downtown Toronto, they had this like very large flagship uh, CD and record store. Yeah. Um, and he would really frequent like, yeah, like every weekend, pretty much almost every weekend. And I would accompany him as a kid. Um, and so I guess initially, I mean, I love the sound of music, but it also became kind of like a tactile relationship for me. Um, and like looking at records and pulling CDs off the shelf at home. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, and then going to to stores with my dad and, and looking at all the cool album covers, like, I think it was a whole experience for me that was kind of awe-inspiring
3: So was his collection entirely jazz or did he have a lot of different sort of?
7: For sure. Yeah. He, he listened to so much different stuff. He had a, a large jazz collection, um, but he loved world music. Um, I mean, he still does. Um, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of other stuff. Opera. He loves classical music. I think he listened to a lot at when he was growing up as well. Um, but he had so many different styles in his, in his collection at home. Right. So there was lots to choose from. Um, but in terms of jazz specifically, um, he had a lot of vocalists in his uh, collection. So I heard a lot of Sarah Vaughan, Ella Fitzgerald, and Nat King Cole as a kid.
1: Right. And that
7: kind of hooked me. I think Ella Fitzgerald in particular, uh, with her you know, improvising and everything, was, was really uh, kind of captivating me at a young age
3: so with with a variety of sounds, did you just eventually gravitate to jazz out of the stuff that you were able to play from his collection, or was there like a moment that you can think, "Oh, this is a record or a sound that kind of was like, oh, this is kind of the music I like or or want to gravitate to?
7: yeah, there was there was so much because there was so many things I did love, but there was something about, and I specifically point to Ella Fitzgerald because there was one recording. My dad had a lot of uh, like vocal compilations Mm -hmm. and I've since done research and realized I think it was from Ella Live in Berlin. But um, anyway, there was a version of Mack the Knife, which is very famous um, that she does live. It's from this famous concert. And that particular recording, for whatever reason, um, I listened to like nonstop on repeat.
3: Right. And And I
7: just. Yeah, I just kept going back to it.
3: Was it something where you're kind of trying to break it down and and figure out what it was about it that you you gravitated to, or or like you know, were you were you thinking structural? Or
7: I don't, you know, what? Because the first time I heard it, and when I really got into it, I was six at the time. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if I understood anything technical about it. I think it was an energy, uh, you know, kind of like that X Factor thing. I don't even know what it was. There was just something that I was attracted to and I would just keep playing it. (laughs) And I remember, even to the point, I I came back to it later too, when I was about nine, and I I ended up recording it onto a cassette tape and bringing it to school on a Walkman. And uh, anyway, I just remember there was something about that song that I I just never exhausted of Mm. it or, or from it, you know, so I'm not sure what it was. So I think it was an energy thing. And and now looking back with, with hindsight, that that's something I gravitate to in a lot of music now. It's where I'll hear something and I don't even know technically what it is. Like maybe later I'll go to the piano and try to figure out what harmony that musician was, was using or whether they're improvising over. But it's always an energy thing for me that I think really captures my imagination, which brings me back to certain artists later, you know, as a listener, too. Right. So, Does that yeah.
3: inform your own like music making then? Like, are you kind of not happy with a song of your own until it has an energy that kind of meets a certain criteria? Or yeah, feel? I think
7: to some extent, for sure. Yeah, I think um, uh, the music I create now I, I find is like very collaborative too. So a lot of the stuff that we do in my project, um, I really ask a lot from the guys in the band. To, you know, we kind of brainstorm, figure out how to shape the songs after I've written them. So I think that kind of energy idea comes later in the writing process, um, in the collaborative part of it. And in writing, I think it's hard sometimes to really know or to really be intentional about um, embodying kind of energy, because I think that really comes out in the performance side. Right. So, I guess in short, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm conscious of creating that when I'm actually just alone in a room at a piano writing, but um, it's something that we do work towards as an ensemble, I think, and we we do talk about a lot of those ideas as we're rehearsing.
3: You, you mentioned that you know a lot of the things you listen to are were, were particularly like vocal jazz artists. How yeah. did you end up then picking up the saxophone, and did the like phrasing and, and things that you learned from listening to vocal jazz mm. kind of transition into your horn playing
7: well i i'd like to think so um (laughs) uh, i think saxophone it's interesting for me that i think that was in my mind as a kid they were very separate things like i knew it was all related to jazz Mm -hmm. um i know it's cliche but i mean seeing lisa simpson play saxophone on the on the simpsons was like a probably early connection for me Uh. um seeing a female play saxophone yeah um, but was probably more monumental in my growth was um, I attended an art school um, from grades four to eight, so elementary school. And the band teacher, when I was there, what happened to be a female who played saxophone. Um, and she was just the coolest thing in my mind at, at the time. And I everything she did, I kind of wanted to do. Um, so I had seen her playing even before I started band officially in grade six because I had um uh, a brother and sister at the same school who were studying music too and i had seen her play and i was aware of this teacher um and then yeah when i when i started band i kind of just knew i i wanted to play the sax there was just something about the saxophone um so did you have i have to play angry. clarinet first or i did yeah oh. I, I did start with clarinet in grade six for one year and then i transitioned saxophone for the the following two years i was still that school um but yeah, I can't even say that it was the sound that captured me first. It was very much like the image of of just seeing a cool person play, you know? It's like as simple and and almost silly as that, but um it had a really huge impact on me.
3: Well, I mean that's sometimes when especially when you're a kid, you're making decisions yeah. like that, right? That can have long-term consequences in terms totally. of like who you are as a person.
7: I know. <laughs> no, we don't even think about it. I know. It's crazy.
3: So at what point do you go from, you know, like a kid who wants to be the, the cool music teacher with the saxophone to <laughs> I'm going to be a, a performer, I'm going to be a band leader, I'm, this is going to be my thing?
7: Hmm. I think, um, I mean, I had an interesting path, I, I ended up continuing um, in an art school for one year of high school, um, but I kind of lost interest, you know, temporarily, um, I had a pretty strict band teacher at, at the high school level and it kind of just deflated my inspiration for that time. Oh. So I ended up uh, switching schools and I ended up doing a very academic uh, kind of course load for the, the remainder of high school. Um, but I continued taking private lessons uh, for music uh, like as an extracurricular activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always loved the saxophone. So um, when it came time to do college applications, I kind of put a bunch of feelers out. So I had applied to Humber College, which is the main uh, jazz program, one of the more reputable ones, as well as uh, University of Toronto, New York University in Toronto. Um, but I only applied to Humber. Um, but I also uh, applied for a forensic science program at University of Toronto and um, a program of arts and sciences at McMaster, uh, which is in Hamilton in Ontario, and, mm-hmm. um, But I did the audition at at Humber, and I I had no intention of really pursuing a career in music um, when I was 18. But I figured after I got accepted, I kind of said to myself, you know, if I don't do this now, it's something I might regret later. And I I don't want to be that (laughs) 45-year-old person down down the road who kind of regrets not having just done that one year of you know, music uh, after high school. So it was never... um, a decision. I kind of just tried it thinking I would just do a year
1: mm-hmm. and
7: then end up switching into another program of, of you know science-based or something unrelated to music. Um, but I had such an inspiring year at Humber College. Uh, the community there was just so um, thriving and, and uh, motivating for me that I ended up doing four years and, and finishing my bachelor's of music without really intending to do that at all. <laughs> So it was kind of a change—a uh, change of trajectory for me in that sense.
3: Right. So, coming out of Humber, then, uh, like, is it okay? So I've graduated now. I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, make this a career as a performer, or like, how do you like? What what's what's like the first thought as you you know cross the stage and and move your tassel to the left side?
7: Yeah. Well, it was still very uncertain for me to be honest. Like, I really, um, I think I was still. In the headspace where, where I entered was, you know, I'm going to try to do this, but I'm not really labeling myself, um, I mean, in my mind as as a full-time musician yet. Like, I kind of wasn't sure. I was just gonna, getting my footing out of school and, and um, not being sure where I was, was headed. And, um, you know, fortunately, I had a lot of support from my parents, and um, I did live at home for a few years after graduating, and not having to worry about too much about uh, money at that point. Um, and just trying to play with people. Um, but yeah, I, I really kind of ha- didn't really officially decide. Um, again, in my mind, I, I know I was actively pursuing musical projects and stuff with, within my community, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know if I ever really made the decision, uh, at, in a concrete way, but I just kept telling myself, you know, I'm going to just keep trying and maybe each year try to do something different, uh, musically. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing I did after graduating was uh, uh, do a cruise ship contract oh. um, in like the show band, uh, which is a very interesting experience. But at that time at Humber College, a lot of the students were doing kind of jobs like that in the summers, And I had heard a lot of my friends uh, who were older than me doing that after school just as a way to make some money. Mm-hmm. So that was the first main thing I did out of school. Um, and it was a short contract, and when I came home, um, I just tried to look for some teaching work and uh, reconnect with my friends and, and just try to do jam sessions and play whenever I could, basically.
3: Did the cruise ship, like, did you learn any lessons coming out of that that you, you still use or apply?
7: Um, I guess, yeah, probably subconsciously without even realizing it. I think it was a, a really great hands-on um, and first, like, real kind of work you're kind of clocking your time in that kind of context. Um, but yeah, there were, there were lots of visiting musicians because, um, I played in the band that was kind of the backing band for any, uh, traveling artists and they themselves do kind of a circuit, um, in that scene. So it was great in terms of, um, having to prepare with very short prep time. Um, different shows i think every night roughly was a different musician coming on with their own book of music um so yeah the band would have to rehearse the day of and then do two shows each night right um and then would rotate from week to week or sometimes yeah like i said there might be multiple artists within the same week so it was a very kind of like keeping keeping on your toes and and paying attention to to new music and how it all comes together really quickly so i think in that sense it really um it did shift my gears in that way. Yeah. Um, and of course too, there's the other side, which I mean, people don't talk about, but it's also like the mundaneness, too, to some extent of having to repeat, um, you know, the same music or working with the same people, which I mean, I don't mean to make that sound mundane, but it's also, you know, like kind of the, the grind of um, figuring out how to work with people who maybe, you know, on some extent you don't always get along with in, in every respect, but um just having to maintain a, a good working environment with people all the time.
3: That really sets up my next question well, which was you, you're the band leader. How do you mm-hmm. go about figuring out who your quartet is?
7: Uh, that's such a good question. And I think it's so different for different people too. Um, for me personally, um, it was really important to me when I finished school to, to get my own band together. And for, uh, what would it be now? Like nine years when I when we first started playing, the the priority for me was to play with people who were better than me. That was the biggest thing, and of course, if they're great and nice people, that's a bonus. But I mean, um, and that's turned out to be the case in, in in my band, which is I'm very fortunate to to be in that position. Um, they're great players, and they're they're super close friends of mine, um, and they were in school as well, um, but. I think Paramount was, was really to, to be challenged um, in a musical setting for me. Um, but yeah, I think, and, and and finding people that you can really have an honest uh, musical dialogue, but also like a verbal dialogue when you're you know outside of um, rehearsal and off a bandstand. Um, I've tried to find people that I can really speak, uh, yeah, honestly, and just have, have a really... Strong um, connection and, and communication with, because I think that's that's um, crucial to the development of the music and and just the friendship too, as a whole.
3: Right. So then, in terms of is the creation of the music, you you mm-hmm. know you're writing these songs and like how what what form are they in when you bring them to the rest of the band? Like how how worked out are they, or is it you know the kernel of an idea or what's
7: mm-hmm yeah, it's a kind of a range of of things. I think when we first started, I would come with sort of partially finished songs. I mean for the most part, they they were what I thought they would be, and I, I would come complete with um, kind of like a lead sheet. So uh, for those who are not familiar, like um, uh, a sheet of music with a melody and the chord changes um, that are readable in a standard way for you know all jazz musicians or improvising musicians. Um, so it's kind of like the bare bones or the, the skeleton of the piece. Um, not every part is notated specifically. It would just be, yeah, the chords and the melody drum parts. I like rarely notate. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually I never, I never have any drum parts specifically. So those are kind of ideas as, as well as specific bass lines. Um, sometimes I would write those out, but sometimes we come up with that together, um, as a group or, um, just myself and the bassist. Um, But yeah, even though I would come sometimes when I did have a complete tune, uh, I would hand out the music and and we would workshop a lot. So a lot of the songs that end up um, kind of as a final product on our our albums, the last two albums we've done, they have been edited, like there may have been chunks of songs that we totally scrapped (laughs) in the rehearsal process where I had originally written it, but we we never ended up using it.
3: And it's just like kind of by virtue of you guys not thinking it works or something yeah, exactly. you make those decisions. Yeah.
7: yeah, We try, well, I try to be very diplomatic about that and let everyone kind of voice their like, Oh, you know what? I don't know. Like, what do you guys think of this? And somebody might say, well, it sounds like, you know, the transition from this section to this, it sounds a little clunky or a little awkward. What if we just tried this and then we tried and if it works, that's kind of what goes. Um, I try to let go of a lot of the stuff I've written, though. It's, close to me in the writing process. Um, I really do my best to let go of it in the rehearsal portion of developing the music because um, I trust my bandmates and they often have better ideas (laughs) than I do. And and we just try to, yeah, we just try to, or I try to cultivate that, that collaborative dynamic.
3: So it's your song to the point you bring it to the band and at that point it's the band's song.
7: Kind of, yes. I mean, though they didn't technically write the melody of the chord, like we're kind of moving things around together. And um, it kind of does take on a a new form of expression at that point.
3: Right. Yeah. You you mentioned one of the lessons you learned on on the cruise ship was about, you know, playing the same thing over and over. Yeah. uh, And sort of the the rigors of that. When it comes to touring then, either, you know, on the festival circuit or, you know, when you've got the new record and you're kind of out playing it, how do you keep the energy or, or find the energy when when you're kind of, you know, expected to play a certain, you know, track list, let's say?
7: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess, um, I'm trying to think about this. I guess, like, I kind of have faith in, in the art form. I guess it so, sounds a little cliche, but I know that, you know, generally in jazz, I mean, of course, what's expected in my community is that, with jazz musicians in general, actually, is to to know uh, like the standard you know, American songbook repertoire. Playing standards at jam sessions. I mean, it's kind of the same uh, approach in that respect. Where I never get tired of the jazz standards that I love, and I've played hundreds of times at this point, because I know if I'm really approaching the music in the spirit of the genre and the history, it's always going to be different anyway. And right. I kind of know that about the art form I've, I've kind of chosen to embrace. So I, I see that as same with regards to my original music that um, it's the same, but it's never the same.
3: So your songs become your standards then?
7: Yeah, I guess, I guess in a nutshell, like it's, I, I know it's, it can never be the same, even though it is the same, um, perhaps like template or canvas that we're painting over, you know, as an analogy, but um, it, will, it will never be the same because any piece within the uh, spirit of the art form is never going to be the same.
1: Right.
3: Now, the shows that you're playing here, one of them is a dinner show. Yeah. And, I am I mean, obviously you had, you know, experience on the cruise and stuff. Have you played, like, dinner shows before?
7: Um, well, we have done a lot of uh, performances, um like a restaurant setting where people are dining maybe not marketed per se as a dinner show Um, but yeah we've we've done a lot of uh, various types of performances I'm not sure if we would change um, too much like I probably wouldn't cut so much from the repertoire we might just rearrange the order of the pieces and and figure out the best way um, in terms of the program to to build up you know to some more of the more listening demanding pieces um, but yeah I'm gonna try not to uh, change too much of our program maybe just swap around uh, the order of some stuff
3: yeah I was, I was curious about that because I mean obviously even at like club shows and stuff you're, you're competing with people having drinks and ordering drinks and yeah and sure. attentions not necessarily being entirely focused on you but you know particularly with, with eating you know mm-hmm. I, I, I wonder what kind of <laughs> challenge that represents
7: I mean, I, I try to treat everything um, uh, as you know, um, you know. Try not to treat too many performances too differently from the next.
1: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, but yes, I mean, it, it does require a different kind of sensibility, I think, um, in terms of how we pace the set. So I'll definitely keep that in mind, and um, I'm working on some new music right now. So we'll we'll try to see how different things factor into the the set that we already have. and i think we'll we'll find a good balance
3: <laughs> sure enough so the new music that you're working on uh mm-hmm. do you have like like a album release date in mind or is this kind of just in the infancy
7: um well we're we're hoping to record uh sometime in the late uh late summer this year um so this is great a great opportunity to have this tour coming up in june uh, to kind of work through some existing rep and then try some new stuff and see what uh, kind of sticks with the band. But, um, yeah, no release planned quite yet, but yeah. we are just planning a, a recording session at the moment. So excited about that. Well,
3: I am excited at the prospect of another Alice and Al. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, I want to get you to pick a track from one of the first two records that we can play for folks. Um, and if you have a reason why you're picking it or an anecdote about the song.
7: Oh, um, maybe we could start uh, I'm trying to think uh okay maybe maybe uh, through light from the second record uh our album forest grows um i guess i'm choosing through light um it was a piece that i very much through composed um so i i, I did notate a lot of the parts aside from the percussion and drums that fabio was playing um all the the bass and piano parts were kind of a bit more meticulously notated so it was kind of a it's an example of a piece where I, I wrote quite thoroughly um, in in that regard but we did shape it a lot so in terms of the arrangement itself um, the band collaborated on that front and kind of uh, adjusted instrumentation or figuring out where different people would enter and and um, yeah, so so uh, very much uh, a through written piece on my end, but collaborative in its uh, performance
3: ties all the things together. Uh, so we'll listen to through light. That's from Forest Grove, the Juno award winning record I should mention. And uh, June twenty first at the Kitchen Sink, six p.m. dinner show, nine p.m. cocktail show. Allison Al, thanks for joining us here.
7: Thank you so much, Michael.